Harry Butthole Podcast is produced in partnership with Joy Sauce. Harry Butthole. Welcome to Harry Butthole Podcast. This is a podcast based on the popular Korean saying, if you laugh while crying, hair grows out of your butthole. I'm Youngmi Mayor. I'm the host. Each week I discuss a sad topic or sad story with a with a special guest, and then I try to make them laugh about it um, and make hair grow out of their butthole. This week I have such an exciting guest. You might know her as the author of World Travel and Irreverent Guide, or Bourdain, the Definitive Biography, author and editor, Lori Wooliver. Hello. <laughs> Clap it up, everyone. <laughs> Should I say hi now? <laughs> and you you had a podcast for a very long time. Yes. Carb Face for Radio, which is mm. it's a little bit on the hiatus. I can't say too much more about it, but uh, we're, we're taking a little a little break for the time being. So you're a pro at this. I have a podcast partner who's very good at it, and I've been able to cobble together a couple of uh, skills to not embarrass myself. Wait, can I ask you about your book, World Travel and a Reverent Guide? It was co-authored by uh, Anthony Bourdain himself. Yes, that's right. Sort of a weird circumstance. It's a weird circumstance. I don't know if you've heard, but Anthony Bourdain died five years ago. I was his assistant for a long time. We had written a cookbook together in 2016 called Appetites. Uh, and we had just mm. started to write another book together, this book, World Travel. And we were about three months into that process when he died. So mm. the, we sort of made a decision with myself and uh, my agent and the publisher to try and move forward with it and and see what we could do to, to actually finish the book. Or when I say we, I mean I, I guess. Yeah. But with the blessing of the publisher and the estate. Uh, so I... It became a different book than what we originally started out to do. There was going to be a lot of original writing and essays from Tony, uh, which he did not mm. get a chance to do before he died. But it is a it is a travel guide to the world based on all of the traveling that he did in his many years as a television host and writer. So there's a lot of his voice in there that's called from, mm. you know, a lot of I had access to all the scripts and everything from mm. that he made for television. And then I uh, included essays from other people that were part of his uh, career and in some cases his life. There's two essays from his brother in there. Mm. So it's a, it is in spirit the book that we set out to write, but obviously it was um, manifested in a, in a different way than was originally planned. And it's very weird to, pro to publish and promote a cookbook or not a cookbook, a travel book with, um, with a very beloved and very famous uh, deceased author. Right. I can't imagine. Can I ask you, how do you feel just really quick about, because I know that there are multiple, I think, like biographies about him that came out and stuff like that, and even a documentary. Yeah. How do you feel about all those? Depending on the thing, I have different feelings yeah. about it. I was yeah. I was involved a little bit with making the documentary. I was a consulting producer. So mm -hmm. I feel great about that film. I You know, yeah. it was... Um, you know, it was done in a really smart and sensitive way by um, Morgan Neville, who's a very who's a, a great guy and and a really um, a filmmaker that really wanted to get it right. Uh, there was uh, unfortunately there was kind of a a distraction when the film came out. There was this very small mm -hmm. amount of AI uh, used in the mm -hmm. in one sequence. They recreated Tony's voice reading an email that he had actually written, and yeah, that kind that. of got you know it was. It was in some of the pre-release uh, press, and it got sort of an outsized viral reaction. People were just ready to like right. hate on it really hard, and it was really unfortunate because it was probably fewer than forty-five seconds in a two-hour film of AI. There's a lot of right. Tony's voice in the film, and all of that is real and taken from you know thing taken from TV voiceover primarily, or or you know uh, cuts of of pieces of the show. Uh, or him, you know, reading his own audiobooks, but there was this one little segment that was created by AI. And um, yeah, it just overshadowed what I think was a really beautiful and honest film. And it, it was, uh, you know, it was, I, I don't know, it was upsetting to me that people were just so willing to kind of just like hate it, just 
you know, knee jerk. Tony would have hated this. Like, how the fuck do you yeah. know? Whatever. Anyway, I don't want to go too down that rabbit hole too much. But anyway, I think right. that I thought the film was great and I was, you know, I was very happy to be a small part of it. You know, there was an unauthorized biography that came out this fall that I didn't mm-hmm. love, I didn't participate in. You know, I kind of had to just make a peace with the idea that like Tony was a huge figure. People were really moved yeah. by him in life, moved by his death. And there are people that are going to continue to make and write and say things in reaction to him. It's not my place to control that or to police it. You know, I had my own biography, which is an oral biography, meaning that I did a, a bunch of interviews with people and put together Tony's story based on what those, you know, close to 100 people had to say about him. So I did my own project in response right. to his death. So yeah, you know, I've had to learn to kind of just accept it. I am just one person that worked for and with him and I had my chance to say my thing and other people should have their chance to say their thing. Do I think the unauthorized biography (sighs) uh, needs to exist or is good or is going to make people feel good? No, but like, I get it. You know, I watch Bravo. I I listen to celebrity gossip podcasts. Like I understand, you know, if I didn't have a personal relationship with with Tony, maybe I would feel differently about all of that. But it feels gross to know that some of this more mm-hmm. uh, sensational stuff is out there. But it's part of the contract, I guess, when, when you make, when you when you become a famous celebrity. Yeah, I'm so fascinated by this because obviously I didn't really know him personally, but I, I'm friends with mm-hmm. Helen, who you're also friends with. And I feel like this is one of the only people that I'm close to people that were close mm-hmm. to him, you know, like yourself and... And it's just really interesting watching that because it I've you know, I, I never really thought about celebrity in that way because all the celebrities in my life are like very far removed from me mm-hmm. and like interacting with people that like see these big figures and how that must feel, especially after his death. That's like so fascinating to me. Yeah. Um it's been a process yeah. for sure. <laughs> acceptance yeah yeah but i'm really excited about can i mention the memoir that you have coming out sure about your own memoir yeah you're working on a memoir about your own life and it sounds amazing i don't know how much you can say can you say what it's called or just like yeah yeah so it's called care and feeding and Mm -hmm. i'm writing it for echo which is an imprint of harper collins i am in the process of of finishing it turning it in this fall and then from what i understand it'll be published in uh early 2025 which feels like a long way away but yeah the days and the months and the years go quickly yeah so it's about working with Tony, it's about working with Mario Batali, who was sort of my mm. first big boss after cooking wow. school. It's about being a wife and a mother and kind of, you know, moving through the world as a woman in these uh, very kind of male-dominated realms of, of the New York food and media world. Mm. And it's about addiction, uh, you know, being a drunk and getting sober. So, it's, you know, it's very personal, but I think and hope that there will be a lot for other people to grab onto and, and relate to. Does it feel kind of funny that you were the assistant of Mario Batali and then also Anthony Bourdain? It seems like the the dark, the Darth Vader and the like, I don't know, the good guy of, you know what I mean, of the food world. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, they're two very different people whose lives took very different paths. But I think that it's funny because people saw, you know, Tony's image was the bad guy, the bad boy, you know, all this like kind of this. No, this, I feel like he was a bad boy, but he was beloved. Yes. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you knew him, you knew that he was like a teddy bear and like just a yeah. like a really good guy. And he had this sort of crusty exterior, but he actually was like very, very sweet and, and gentle person. Whereas I think, yeah. you know, Mario's image was like this cuddly sort of like happy-go-lucky Italian chef, whatever. And he actually... Uh, it was be- a monster. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Lori, I am obsessed with this. Co- like, this is like, because, you know, obviously, we've talked about we're both writing memoirs right now. And this is kind of a big theme of I realized of like, what I'm writing about where it's like, the person that's truly what does a good person and a bad person look like? And what does that mean? And like, I really grapple with that a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. For some reason, it's like this theme that I'm obsessed with. And I feel like in life, you know, the thing I've learned is that it's usually the people that 
try to come off as good that they're like to sus yeah yeah there's it's like you have to want you know there's if they're trying so hard to convince you that they're like good and you know harmless and and they want the best for you like scratch a little scratch the surface a little bit there's usually a uh yeah i mean i think it's something that we're really having to reckon with in the years after me too i just read this great book that's gotten a ton of press uh called um what is it called? Monsters of Fans Reckoning uh, by Claire mm. Dieterer. Uh, mm-hmm. That's just, it's, you know, she writes about all of this stuff about, you know, how do we separate the art from the artist? How do we separate, you know, bad men from from work that we love? You know, she really focuses yeah. a lot on Roman Polanski and she talks about Woody Allen uh, and wow. just kind of, you know, interrogates like, what is the role of the fan? And, you know, can we still, uh, can we still listen to R. Kelly? Can we still listen to Michael Jackson? <sighs> In a way that's not didactic or overly academic. I mean, it's very smart and well researched, but like surprisingly fun and funny to read given the the subject matter. So I, I, I highly sounds... recommend it. Well, you know, I always think that I feel like people. It's almost like at this point, it's like every musician is problematic, and people are like, "How is this happening? How is it every one of them?" I'm like, look at that industry and look at how a, a man becomes famous, and mm-hmm. of course they're gonna take advantage of power. It's all about power and you know yeah. powerlessness, and and obviously it's gonna make people like that. But wait, mm-hmm. no, you were talking about your book. There was an article that came out about the publishing world and how mm-hmm. all the like old guards were like fired or like quit at the same time. And I don't know anything about it, but I remember you brought it up. Can you just like explain what happened to people who might not be in the publishing world? Sure. So it's specifically Penguin Random House, uh, Mm -hmm. which is one of the few remaining, you know, major book publishers in the US. And of course, they have you know, influence all over the world. So they they tried to make a merger with another uh, publishing house whose name I'm mm-hmm. now not remembering. But I mean, it went. It was like a uh, a major. Was it a Supreme Court? I'm gonna I'm gonna reveal Whoa. the depth of my ignorance when I try and get specific about this. But there was <laughs> it was a major antitrust case uh, where they were oh. trying to merge with another house. Ultimately, they were not allowed to do so, which I think was you know a great sort of uh, triumph for authors and people who buy books, you know, it's like if there are only one or two major publishers left, like it's just not, you know, it's not great for authors. It's not great for the price of books. It's not great for, uh, you know, diversity and variety in the, in the, in the world. Uh, so anyway, uh, once that fell apart, you know, a lot of the, the top management at Penguin Random House either left or were pushed out, you know, the CEO, Mm. the COO, all these people, uh, at the top, Mm. you know, because they didn't achieve this, you know, disgusting uh, corporate goal were were let go or, or showed themselves the door. They got a new CEO, and in the name of ruthless business efficiency, they started making buyout offers to many of the the top, uh, you know, long entrenched, uh, many of them boomer um, editors. Uh, mm-hmm. And publishers in the it, from across their imprints. So there were this past week, the CEO announced that they had had accepted buyout offers from lots and lots of editors that you know legacy editors that had been there for a very long time. Mm. What this means, I think, what it means, is, I think it's actually a good thing. People who there's just not a lot of movement within the publishing world because an editor gets a top job like that, and they're just going to yeah. sit on it until they die. You know, so there's right. just not a lot of room for younger uh, editors to move up. And you get kind of stuck in space, and the only way to to move is to change uh, to change companies, change imprints, or to leave the yeah. business. HarperCollins had a long, like a three month strike at the end of uh, 2022 and into 2023 over uh, starting wages, over you know working conditions. You know, it's it's an industry that's historically been sort of gatekept uh, from, you know, Mm -hmm. you have to have family money or you have to have a rich spouse or you have to be, basically you have, you know, there's, it's not a sustainable um, industry for a person living in New York, which is where, you know, most of the industry is, is based in the U S. So there were lots and lots of these older uh, editors pushed out quote unquote, but you know, they got their buyouts, they got their golden parachutes and it'll be really interesting to see what happens now uh, with, 
with uh, younger people who, who may, um, younger people that are, you know, could be 50 years old, but have been kind right. of in, you know, stuck in place for a long time, uh, getting to be the next generation of people who make decisions about what books get bought and, you know, how they get promoted and, and published. So yeah. uh, that's kind of a general overview. And, you know, there was a lot of hand wringing in the press this week about, oh, this and that, you know, the last, they called this one woman like the last class act in publishing. It's like, Ugh, what yikes. the fuck does that mean? That she's, you know, she was a like New York society debutante and she had a yikes. ton of family money and she was like yeah. super white lady, like who had huh. a whole bunch, you know, like it just was sort of lamenting this mad men era of publishing, you know, where mm. editors would just, uh, not, not work that hard, you know, and buy yeah. their friends' books and and really rely on the labor of people who were making a lot less money than them. Um, so right. uh, as somebody who is, you know, outside the industry, except that I've published a few books, uh, mm-hmm. I, I see it as a good thing. So I, I'd be interested to hear, you know, from the inside how, how it's, how you know, what the reverberations are, but I see it as a good thing. I also, even though, same I'm like writing this book I I consider myself outside the industry and I see it as a good thing too I also I know that this a lot of people are so weird about this but I I think what I've noticed recently is like a lot of people that seem to be getting book deals and seem to be selling a lot of books are people with like large social media accounts and things like that and you know there's this old money like legacy condescension among people like that because they're like that's not anything but you know it's also like the power of the people you know like if somebody on youtube is able to sell millions of books or whatever then that that's important and they're making money and who can poo poo that you know yeah I, i think it's also you know exciting too and it just shows like how i guess the world is like moving and who knows? Yeah. I, I, it sounds like a good thing to me. I didn't really know much about it, but just hearing it from you, it sounds good mm-hmm. um, and sounds exciting. I guess moving on very briefly, you saw the Barbie movie. What are your thoughts? Everyone's talking about it. Oh, my God. I I loved it. I mean, I know it was not <laughs> a perfect or even a great movie. Uh, a friend of mine who knows a lot more about, um, you know, scripts and entertainment this morning was like, yeah, I had a good time, but, you know, the script is a mess. And I was like, yeah, I, I guess you're right. Like, he, he was mm-hmm. like, I couldn't tell you what it was about if you put a gun to my head. And I was like, okay, sure, mm-hmm. yes, that's fair. Like, it's not it's not a coherent, like, narrative, but it was I, it was so funny and honestly just so fucking weird. Um, yeah. Like, it's just – I love that they gave uh, Greta Gerwig $145 million to make, like, a pretty weird movie, you know, that was, like, yeah. very funny and kind of Trojan-horsed this feminist uh, message into, like, a movie about a toy, you know? I mean, is it also right. – it's totally brand uh, activation for Mattel 100%, you know? Like, it's definitely yeah. Mattel trying to uh, revive the image of Barbie and sell a lot more Barbie dolls. Um, fine. I – I had a great time. It was really funny and weird. And uh, Kate McKinnon was great. Uh, Ryan Gosling was great. I mean, there's so many good performances. Issa Rae. Uh, mm. And they there was just so much going on. I mean, it's the kind of movie that I want to see again. Um, I did wonder. I mean, there, the audience – I went to a 510 showing um, in Queens. And it was mm-hmm. sort of equal parts, like, you know, groups of – people younger than me, like millennials and Gen Z groups, you know, dressed in like tiaras and pink dresses and short shorts, like there to sort of have like a fun party experience. And there were also a lot of um, women with their daughters and and Mm -hmm. a few sons, but mostly daughters, like, you know, ages like eight to 14 that were there to see like a fun Barbie movie, you know, and I was wondering... (laughs) Like when there were, you know, there were these sort of uh, mini monologues about the patriarchy and about, you know, uh, reality and body image and all these things. I'm like, what, you know, what, I wonder what is, what's penetrating, you know, to the children and are they sort of like, wait, I thought this was going to be like the Trolls movie. Like why, you know, this is like school, you know, I don't know. I'm very curious to hear how much of that um, 
got through. But uh, yeah, I just thought it was, I, I had a great time. And I literally cried at the end. And I don't know how many people actually are going to be moved to tears by the Barbie movie, but there is a very <laughs> heavy handed kind of emotional mother and daughter manipulation, like toward the end Uh-oh. of the movie. And I yeah. cried real tears. And like, I'm on Zoloft. It's not that easy to cry. <laughs> but like, I was like, I just was feeling it, you know? And then we, I, yeah. I went with my friend and we came out and like, her eyes were watering, and I was like, "Oh my god, did you cry too?" And she was like, "No, I just have allergies." I was like, "Oh." That's <laughs> well, I, I think know. yeah, that's a that's actually interesting. Um, that's an interesting comment because you know I know just by seeing like the marketing and just by the the commercials and the trailer I've seen, I can tell that it's a movie made for adults, you uh-huh, know, uh-huh. and it seems like their target demo are like millennials, you know, that we like grew up playing with barbies but i can also see like the confusion of people being like well this is for kids right and getting there and being like what mm-hmm. that is really interesting they yeah, should make one for kids well it's pg-13 you know and mm-hmm. they and they definitely you know there are like heavy concepts that you can see them that they really smoothed over and made like extremely quick and you know user friendly so as to not get bogged down in like discussions right. about the supreme court or you know mm. but there you know there is dialogue there that's like you have to have you know at least like uh, an intro to literature or feminism or sociology course to be understand what, the, what they're talking about so it's yeah, very is I don't know. I haven't dived into all of the discourse and I kind of don't want to, but I did read some reviews last night that, you know, sort of reflected this mixed view of like, well, this is a this is a movie paid paid for by, you know, a, a toy company about toys or like this is a heavy feminist uh, you know, message Trojan horse in uh in the Barbie Dreamhouse, but it was also just I, very funny. Barbie Dreamhouse. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that um because I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of like conservative people are gonna go watch it. Like Barbie, you, do you think that they're gonna be like, oh, they're gonna be so mad? No. Yeah, they there's, are? there's, you know, there. It sort of takes on, it directly takes on, sort of like the patriarchy and consumer culture in America. Yeah. Uh, there's definitely at least one trans Barbie, and it's not mm-hmm. like pointed out in any way. But you're just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, like there's, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of. Um, you know, there's a lot of feminist messaging. So if, yeah, if like, you know, country club, uh, Connecticut, you know, Republican voter Barbie mom takes her daughter to see it thinking it's going to be about like, you know, shoes and nail polish, she's going to be mad. But maybe not. Or maybe her daughter will be radicalized in the theater. And, you know, I don't I know. It's <laughs> so I haven't watched the movie yet, but I, I have this weird um, sort of Barbie adjacent thing that I want to talk about that's really mm-hmm. interesting. So I was like, I saw this thing blow up on TikTok. It's called Barbie Botox. And I was like, mm-hmm. what is this? And it's all these women who went in and got their like trapezius muscle, like the muscle right here at the base of your neck, Botox. And they did it to make their neck, neck appear longer. Oh my God. But then so it went viral on TikTok. But then what, what ended up happening was that all these women realized that it was relaxing a bunch of neck tension and shoulder pain. And all of them were like, okay, now I'm getting the most amazing sleep of my life. I didn't realize that my neck was so fucked up. And so people are making videos now being like, no, this is like a therapeutic procedure. Wow. And wow. I want, and I was like, oh my God, I need to get this done. My neck is so messed up. I, yeah. I want the Barbie Botox, oh my, my neck. <laughs> and this woman was like, I'm sleeping better than I've ever slept in all my life. Wow. And my neck looks skinny. Wow. Okay. That, that we now have to worry about, uh, the girth of our necks is like <laughs> upsetting, but if know. that, you know, micro, uh, vanity has led to like a breakthrough in, in people's having better sleep and, and pain reduction, like great. I thought you were going to be great. like, they were getting this Botox injected into their necks and then it went to their spines and it gave them like botulism Ooh. of the brain or whatever i don't know i'm really glad to hear that it had a happy ending that had nothing to do with like with vanity no but maybe it does kind of remind me of uh how you describe the barbie movie where it's Mm -hmm. like 
surface you're like oh we're gonna go watch this dumb movie about nail polish but then it actually does some good mm-hmm. all these women have relaxed necks now now i'm like oh my god i really want this my neck is so messed up i don't yeah. even care if it slims it right but it's, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so i was like yeah wild um yeah i'm i'm all for anything that uh helps people sleep better and uh i guess if you're neck <laughs> I'm so like having a long, I guess that's a good thing. Having a long neck. Like I never thought about like, is my neck too long or too short? Yeah. It's the last thing I ever would have ever worried about my body. I didn't even know I was supposed to be worried about that. Oh God. I went to a dermatologist last week just to get like my skin checked for, you know, cancer. And I was like, do you do, uh, you know, do you do also do cosmetic dermatology? And I was asking for my son, uh, just yeah. to, you know, sometimes he has acne and has asked about going to a dermatologist and she's like, oh yeah, we can do all kinds of, like started just being like, we could do that, like pointing to me. I'm like, no, 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 oh no, no. God. This is not like sorority rush. Like you don't need to circle the place on my body where I need to, I was like, it's for my son. Like I'm good, you know, like, <laughs> but thank you. Thank you for the suggestions. Yeah. No, they, th- I mean, I'm sorry. Like, I feel like I I don't think you should be offended because they make so much money doing that. So it's their job to make you feel crappy about yourself. So don't even yeah. listen to them. Yeah. They, no, they're just like printing money. Right. They're right. Like, and I was there yeah, like <laughs> using my using my health insurance to get like a check, you know, but they're like, okay, well, none of this is covered by your health insurance, but we could totally, you know, make you look 42 again or whatever it's like okay i'm good i think you know i think a lot of those uh botox procedures that are for pain management are actually covered Mm. by insurance Mm. which is so i'm i like i kind of want to look look into that because my neck hurts but if Mm. you see me next time Lori, and my neck is looking skinny just you know (laughs) i'll ask you how you're sleeping <laughs> just no. I got the Barbie Botox for for other reasons, mm, for yes. non cosmetic reasons. Right. Right. Um. God. Anyway, so I guess you know on the podcast I like to ask guests, you know what what their sad story is. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What's your sad sad story? Um. <laughs> well, one of many. Uh, well, so we were discussing this a little bit off mic uh, a couple days ago. Uh, one of the things that I write about in my book, not extensively, but I do think it's, you know, part of my story is that my mom, uh, got a multiple sclerosis diagnosis before I was even born, before she was married. She was like 19 years old. This is back in the sixties. Uh, and she was mm-hmm. diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And so this is something that she had, I, she always had it. She was able mm-hmm. to, you know, have kids, have a totally normal life. She was a registered nurse. She worked really hard her whole career and was super active. And, you know, we would go cross country skiing and she would go on long walks and she, mm-hmm. you know, water skied. Like she had, when I was a kid, she had a totally normal physical existence. Um, mm-hmm. And she told me and my sister that she had this diagnosis. Well, I think I was like seven maybe or a little younger. Mm. So I always knew that she had this thing, you know, and she, the way that she explained it was like, I, you know, I have this, this disease, it's called multiple sclerosis. You don't have to worry about it. I was like, well, Mm -hmm. too late. Uh, But, you know, everything's fine for now, but eventually, you know, Mm. I'll start to, you know, feel worse. I'll st- you'll start to notice it more. I might not be able to walk at some point, but like, mm. don't worry about it. It's going to be a really long time. So there was always this kind of like awareness that there was this ticking time bomb uh, mm-hmm. in within her. Uh, and but she, you know, di- didn't show any symptoms until. And I almost feel like she sort of willed this. Uh, she there, she really didn't have any symptoms until after my sister and I were both out of college. Wow. Um, and I remember the first time I was really aware of it, um, and she also was like kind of big into denial, you know, so she may have had stuff going on that I just didn't notice. She but the first denial. time I really remember knowing like, oh shit, okay, here we go, was I was, I guess I was actually just toward the end of my college career. My sister was in grad school and we had gone to visit her in DC and we took mm-hmm. uh, a kind of a long walk. We had done some event and then we were going to walk back to our hotel. It was maybe like a mile or less. And about halfway into it, my mom just collapsed and like couldn't walk. 
And it was yeah. like, okay, you know, and then she, she, we got her to a bench. She sat down, she kind of like got her wind and, and eventually we, we did make it back. I think we got a taxi or something, but it was like the first time where it was like, oh shit, like this is really happening, you know? Yeah. Um, and so for the next 25 years, you know, I just watched her decline. She had to retire mm -hmm. from working and then it was like, she had a cane and then she had two canes and then she had a walker and then she had like a more mm -hmm. intense walker. And then it was like a wheelchair for, you know, if there was going to be any out of the house stuff, but she could still kind of get around the house. And then it was, you know, it's just this very long, slow decline. Eventually it was like always a wheelchair, like an electric wheelchair in the house. And then like a push wheelchair, like for the end of the day. And, mm -hmm. you know, she couldn't, like she needed help, you know, with basic, you know, whatever. Anyway, so she died two years ago um, mm -hmm. after kind of a a long, uh, it's like a six month period of like pretty bad, you know, in and out of nursing homes. And uh, once she, once it was clear that she started to lose the, she started to lose the ability to use her hands, and that was going to mm. mean that she was going to be reliant on somebody to feed her. And it was, I don't know, it was probably a month between that. You know, where it was like she was going into the nursing home for the last time and it was clear that she was not going to be coming home again. Within mm. three weeks, she died. I think she just was like, fuck this, you know, like her worst mm -hmm. nightmare was to be like a vegetable in a nursing home, you know. Right. So rather yeah. than – and I don't know how much control anybody really has over that, but I really feel like she was holding it together. She was like scratching and clawing at any – bit of independence that she could keep for herself, you know, in ways right. that ultimately a lot of times made it more dangerous for her. You know, like she kind of right. refused and refused and refused to be in a wheelchair for a long time. And then it's like after she fell and broke her ankle and had to be in a rehab for six weeks, it was like, that's the only thing that got her to the next, to, to give up some independence was like a horrible, you know, uh, situation. Uh right. So it's, it's sad. And it was the kind of sadness that was always there, but she, you know, it was this weird cognitive dissonance because she was, she would be like in denial about what was happening while it was happening, like in front of mm -hmm. your face. So she'd be like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. You know? And it's like, well, clearly you're not fucking wow. fine lady, you know, but like yeah. the, the, you know, what she's saying is like, I want everyone to pretend that it's fine. Yeah, um, go along with it. Yeah, because that's what's going to make me feel okay. But it was so it was yeah. really hard to be around her, and I feel like it had a really profound impact on my relationship with her. Because it was like really, it took a lot of energy and a lot of work to like do the dance and pretend that yeah. things were okay when they weren't. And you know, she would mm -hmm. always insist when we go visit. She would always insist on like at least once, like going out and doing stuff. And I just mm -hmm. like fucking hated it. I yeah. hated going, you know, we would go to a restaurant and there was just so much stress and anxiety about like, are they going to have a ramp? Are we going to be yeah. able to get to the ramp? Like, mm -hmm. is the table going to be appropriate to put a wheelchair up? You know, are they going to like, uh, is she going to choke? You know, because that mm -hmm. became an issue at some point, like her swallowing wasn't great. It's like, are we going to have a fucking issue at the table? You know, is she going to be able to hold her fork? Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it was a tremendous amount of pressure on my dad. Yeah. Um, anyway, well, so. The, well, the going out thing, was that something she was doing because she felt like, well, you're visiting, so we should do this thing? Mm -hmm. um, it was... Yeah, in, in in part it was like, well, let's you know this an occasion like let's go out and do something fun. But she also like you know she still wanted to get out of the house. Like her greatest, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I learned from her and her greatest pleasure in life was just watching and observing and talking about other people. Like mm. she, I mean, she just called it people watching. Moms She'd be love like, that. Yes, that's their that's their sport. Yes, totally. Like, and Whether I totally it's negative got that. Or from not. Her. Yeah. yeah, like people's outfit. I mean, you know, talking shit, they basically, you know, talking making shit. fun of people. Um, My mom loves that too. <laughs> so like we would go to the mall when I was a kid, like we'd go to the mall and she like she would just happily sit on a on a bench while we would be like going into stores or whatever. She would just sit and watch people and then be like – and then we would sit with her and she'd be like, you know, or like in church, you know, like we would, yep. do, would just be like, oh, did you see that family or ooh, that kid or, you know, whatever. Like it was just such a thing. 
So she's still, <laughs> you know, even- you- yeah. Sorry. I just want to yeah. say that I love how you're framing this. I think be- extreme mom be- peak mom behavior <laughs> that everyone's mom does. Mm-hmm. I like how you're framing it like it's like her hobby, like it's like her her job or something. Mm-hmm. It's like one of the things she loves most. Yes. Talking yeah. shit about people. That's <laughs> yes. like, that's literally everyone's mom. They love that. Yes. Yeah. Gossip. <sighs> I mean, she, she used to, have, when we were younger, she, she had this, you know, every she's talk on the phone too. Like, I feel like talking on the phone used to be like a thing that people did. Yep. Even if, you know, yep. we all lived in the I same remember. town, like you yeah. still would have a half an hour on the phone with your friend who like might've lived next door, but it was like a whole different social activity. So her friend Jean would call and Jean was a substitute teacher and like a real gadabout and knew everybody. So she'd get a half hour with Jean and then she'd get off the phone and be like, well, according to Jean, you know, so we just started calling it like- Gossip mining. Yeah. 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 Uh, So even when she was, you know, physically disabled, she still wanted to get out and like see what people were doing, what they were wearing, you know, what was going on, just like- be in the world, you know? So I didn't want to take that away from her. And she and my dad would do that too. But then it was always a thing like, well, we're going to go out to like the local restaurant, you know? And it just was Mm. like, I don't know. I, my anxiety, you know, I just, I just could not wait for that segment of the visit to be over, you know? Um, Yeah. Well, it sounds like, I think, you know, I think that's like a really difficult thing, the denial thing. And because my parents are also like that. Whenever they get ill, they deny it mm. and they pretend that it's not happening. And I understand that it's for their ego, you know, because mm. they don't want to be like, I'm sick and I'm old, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. My dad, I had a similar incident with my dad where he was in a lot of pain. He wouldn't tell us. And then he like, we were walking and he just couldn't anymore. Mm. And I was like, what are you doing? What's going on? Because he never told us that he had this like really painful um, issue with his knees. Apparently all my life, he never, he's never said anything. And I was so confused. And then it, it like, the realization hit that he has been actually struggling with this all my life, you know, and he was always like, when when I was a younger kid, um, he had a really hard time. He had like lots of pain in his legs. And so he would walk really slow. And when when I was a younger kid, he would be like, mocking everyone he'd be like what the fuck is wrong with your mom like why is she always in a rush and or like we would you know like when you're getting on an airplane or something Mm -hmm. he'd be like why are all these losers standing in line like we're all gonna get on the airplane at the it's all it's not gonna take off and he would make fun of people that were always rushing and moving quickly and i I realized that that was because he was in a lot of pain and he had to move really slow Mm -hmm. so his way of hiding it was to pretend that he thought people that moved at a normal pace were losers and it literally dawned on me as an adult when i was like oh he like can't walk wow like he has like a physical something's going on and he's never he never goes to the doctor oh my god and i had just bought into this whole oh yeah people that walk faster are losers i guess when i was a kid wow (laughs) Did you feel when you found out that it was not actually that, did you feel any sense of like, I should have known or like why, like angry because he didn't tell you or like any, any sense of guilt or. I didn't feel guilt because I guess I, well, he, he hit it so well. Mm -hmm. Like it became such a big part of his personality Mm -hmm. to be like making fun of people um, like every time we would go out, he would be like, look at these like losers. Like he was really masking that with this mm-hmm. like really big narrative of like people who walk faster. Losers. <laughs> it's so weird thinking back on it. I never, it never occurred to me that he physically couldn't walk. Yeah. And then, um, he would make fun of us, like me and my sister and my mom for what. And so by then it was just like this thing where we were like, okay, dad, we get it. We're losers, but like, mm-hmm. we want to we're hungry. We want to get to this restaurant or whatever. Yeah. And so it became like this like antagonistic thing. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, like exactly like your story when he literally like s- broke down that one time while we were walking, I was like, oh my God, this has been happening for all my life. Cause my dad was like uh, in his forties when I was born. So he's a little older. Mm-hmm. It was like so shocking. But um, I think what I wanted to say about that is like, 
it's like you can see that it is for their ego like this denial like oh i'm not sick i'm fine but then it's also you know they're in pain and you know that they're um sick so you feel bad you know yeah and it's this mixture of like feeling really annoyed that they won't just say i'm sick help me because mm-hmm. then you could you can let the soft part of yourself reach out and help them like you just want them to be like just say that you're sick so i can react in that way instead of being like i'm fine and uh, yelling at us and stuff you know yeah well i think and it's also i think there's this impulse to protect your kids you know from reality Mm, and like and i see that you know i have a a 14 year old son and yeah you know i sort of am like well you know what what do i need to tell him versus like what can i just like protect him from you know like just to um quickly like you know, bring it back to Tony Bourdain, like the day that Tony died, I found out in the morning before my son went to school. And I was like, well, I'm not going to tell him, you know, he had met Tony once or twice. He knew he was my boss. And I was like, I'm not going to tell, like, let me just get him on the school bus and then figure out, you know, what the fuck. Uh, and, and also his dad and I had just split up. Like we had, I had just Mm -hmm. moved into a new apartment by myself, like two weeks before that. So my kid is already dealing with like, my parents are getting divorced, you know? So I was like, let me not Mm -hmm. like pile this onto him. And, you know, it's like, how do I even explain, you know, suicide, whatever. So he went to school, he came home, he was hanging out with some friends. Like I went and got him and, you know, like at the end of that day, I was like, I guess I have to tell like either he's going to hear it from someplace else or like, he's just going to see that I'm like real fucked Upset. up, you know? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I did, I told him as like toward the end of the day and he was just like, what's going to happen? Like he was so, you know, he took it on himself and was like real. And I was like, oh man, I shouldn't have told yeah. him or I should have told him some other, you know, like softer, you know, like how do you, you know, explain when a nine-year-old is like, why did he kill himself? And I'm like, dude, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I, what do you even say? You know? So I, yeah. I understand that impulse to protect your kids from like the awful stuff or like yeah. from the parents suffering. Cause it's like, it's not your job or your problem as a nine-year-old or as a whatever year old yep. child to, solve your parents' problems. But, you know, as I became an adult with my mom, it's like, okay, well, now I'm an adult and, like, I can help. And it's, uh, you know, there there would always be a moment where it would, you know, like the pain would break through or the struggle would break through. And then it's like, oh, now I feel like an asshole, you know, for I I was playing along with you and now it's clear that, like, you know, you, you are going to fall or, or whatever it is, is, is really is, is, is worse than, you know, we've all been, uh, admitting. So, yeah. uh, the thing with dr- like my drinking too kind of came into it because as my mom got more and more sort of disabled, one of mm-hmm. the things that we could reliably do together was drink. <laughs> mm. Um, so it became a pattern. Like when I would go to visit her, visit my, her and my dad, when I was still drinking, it was like, well, we can definitely have a good time, you know, we'll start around four o'clock, make some real fucking strong cocktails and then move into the wine hour. And, uh, you know, and I would get, uh, you know, loose and be more sort of social and softer and warmer and more forthcoming and more willing to yeah. hang out with her, you know, whereas when I was sober, I was like hungover and irritated and anxious and depressed and would just kind of be like, eh, you know, like sort of revert to my worst like teenage self. But once we were drinking, it was like, and she liked to drink, you know, not quite as much as me, but she was, you know, she liked to drink. Uh, So we could, Mm -hmm. you know, we always knew that at least we could enjoy each other's company if we were like shit faced or I was shit faced Mm -hmm. and she was like halfway there, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the hardest things that I, you know, struggled with when I was deciding to stop drinking was like, what am I going to do with my mom? Or like, my, I really was like, my mom is going to be so disappointed, you know, when like, I can no longer drink with her. And it mm. took me a while to tell her. And then like, the next time I went to visit them after I quit drinking, she was, she was like, really disappointed. And it was like, not even like one drink. Like it's Easter. Mm. Can't you just have like a, like a, just do it like a champagne toast. Like she really, yeah. it took her a while to accept that like, that's not how we're not, we can't relate to each other anymore like that, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Which seems real fucked up now in retrospect. But like, 
you know, we didn't have to leave the house to get drunk together. So, um, I don't know. There's a, I think there's something kind of related there too, in terms of, you know, coming from a, a family of, you know, there's, there are other drunks in our family and, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, that's how people dealt with their, their shit. So, yeah. I don't know. Um, yeah, I feel like there's like something here about just how there's, there's always like, I think a two-sidedness on behavior with parents and it's so easy to like just sort of lean into the one side Mm. but you know even what you were saying about oh um when I was saying oh like when parents are in denial of their illness it's like for their ego but then you're like yeah but then there's like this protective side to protect you as a kid and Mm -hmm. then you know as an adult we don't need that anymore and then like the drinking thing obviously anybody that's sober will hear you say okay, I told my mom I'm sober. And she was like, just one drink. Like we all, you know, I'm sure everyone knows how harmful that is. But there's this other side of like, being like, man, my mom, why I can't believe she did that. That's so harmful. But the other side is like, you know, this is a way that you related and connected with her. And it is understandable, you know, like they, especially, you know, parents, I think, when we do become adults, we can see how they are just people. Mm-hmm. And if they mm-hmm. are struggling with you know relating to other people or like uh struggling with like not really processing their emotions and stuff like that it makes sense that they would just cling on to this thing this like social thing like drinking and and obviously not meaning to harm you Mm -hmm. and but i think that's such a i'm hearing a lot of that from your mom stories and but um i think that's like such an interesting thing about the i think just all relationships that have a deep connection and love you know Mm -hmm. it's none of us have a relationship with anybody that's just purely all good and love there's like all these complicated parts and um there are parts of them that are harmful to you and maybe maybe the person that's doing it is doing it knowingly but a lot of times they they don't know and it just it's like these two very uh distinct sides you know of their behavior yeah yeah it's uh I mean I don't think you know I don't think she was trying to like you know sabotage my sobriety I think she was just sort of like oh man you know it's it's already kind of hard for us to connect and now you know this one reliable thing is gone so like what do we have you know it's um yeah. Uh, and it, it, it was, it did change our relationship, you know, but it was like, I can't, and it was, I mean, it was not good for her. Like I always think about mm. the last, the last Christmas where I was still drinking, we, I was at her house, uh, or their house and, um, I was still married and my sister was there with her kids and like, it just was, I felt like I was, I had this sense that like everybody drinks and parties as much as I do in my family, which was like, not true. You know, like I was the one who was consistently being the most fucked up, but I was like, yeah, everybody's fucked up. So yeah. like, not only did I, I drank so much with my mom and sort of just like incur, you know, kept filling her glass. And you know, this is a woman with multiple sclerosis who was like in her late sixties or early seventies and like in an electric wheelchair. And she yeah. could still take herself to the bathroom at that point. Like she had a whole like complicated system of like being able to do that. But she mm-hmm. was drunk and she went and um, fell in the bathroom, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, I have to mm-hmm. think that I had some part in that. Like, I did not need to get my mom fucked up on champagne, you know, when she was like, right. you know, pretty weak. Uh, anyway, uh, but also <laughs> at the same time, um, I had all these edibles and I brought them with me. And my <laughs> sister is like, not, she doesn't really do you know drugs that much or yeah. ever uh-huh. but she did she was like i was like i got these edibles do you want some and she's like yeah and i gave her like a you know a reasonable portion and i was like you have to be patient it takes longer to kick in than you think like just be yeah. patient and she did uh-huh. took whatever it was a brown part of a brownie and she was like you know after 20 30 minutes she's like i'm not feeling it and i was like you know and i was like all right you know what fine you you want more? Go Famous ahead. Last words. And I yeah. yeah. So I was like, okay, and gave her more. And then she was like, she 
lost her shit. Like she, she like skipped Christmas dinner because she was like so high that she couldn't. Yeah. She like went into the bathroom or into the bedroom and like opened all the windows and it's like you know negative ten degrees and and like oh, no. took all her clothes off and was like, tell mom and dad I have a migraine. I can't like, and I'm laughing at her and she's like, get your teeth out of my face. Like it was. <laughs> I just feel like I like fucked up my whole family. You know, like with mm. my. Uh, my uh, drug and alcohol abuse, but um, it, yeah, uh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't mean way. to do that, but I was also like, let's, you know, great, hey Barbie, let's party, <laughs> like, yeah, so <laughs> come on, Barbie, yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but I, that's like, that's like such a great, you know, that that is like such a great story, and I, I like how you like turned it around because I feel like. I, th- I think just like being a parent and, you know, everyone, obviously everyone says this, like once you're a parent, you see your parents and what they did and you're like, okay, like they didn't mean to do any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad didn't mean to do that thing or he made fun of people all the time. He probably just did it without even knowing. It was like this automatic thing because he was embarrassed. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it's like, it's really interesting because it's so easy to see it when you're parents do stuff like that that are really harmful to you Mm -hmm. um but then you know like you said with like your like your drugs and alcohol thing and all the harm that came you know to your other family members i think for most people it's just so hard to see that that they do that too you know to their other Mm -hmm. family members Mm -hmm. you know so i think i really like you know, I'm really impressed that you are able to have like some that kind of self-awareness and be like, okay, my mom did these things and that really hurt me, blah, blah, blah. But also I, I did stuff and that really hurt people. And like you, you just, when you're doing it, it feels very different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. When you're receiving sure. it. Uh, I do have another Man. kind of funny story. I mean, it's like funny, sad story about my mom. <laughs> um, I mean, I just all, yeah. you know, it's all wrapped up in itself, but in the last... Uh, well, so right when COVID started, this is a really, this is a, all right, I'll just say it's funny. It's also real fucked up. Um, right when COVID started, um, you know, everything's shutting down and, uh, you know, things just feel really, really crazy. And my sister calls me one morning, it's like, you know, March, 2020, late March, 2020. And she was just Mm -hmm. like, uh, our aunt is dead. And I was like, what? So my mom had had this sister, uh, younger sister, totally able-bodied, like really healthy. We used to ride her bike all over town, like, you know, just traveled, like just like living her best life. She was in like the community band. Like she just was like picture of health and happiness. Um, And she was like, yeah, our our aunt died. It's really fucked up. Call me. Um, And so what had happened is – my aunt came over to have dinner with my parents um, uh-huh. and they had this big dinner. It was uh, St. Patrick's Day and they always would have uh-huh. corned beef and cabbage uh, and like a couple of beers. But like nobody drank very much. And but mm-hmm. and my aunt was also quite thin. She ha- So she had like big meal, big bigger meal than she normally does. And she had maybe mm-hmm. two beers, which is probably two more beers than she normally has. Uh, and then she, you know, put her coat on. And left my parents. You know, they had they were chatting and stuff. And then she went out the door and left my parents' house and drove home. You know, she lived like two miles away. Um, mm-hmm. And the next morning, uh, my uh, the, the doorbell rings early, like seven in the morning. And my dad answers the door, and it's a next door neighbor. And she's like, "You have a there's a dead body in your driveway." My dad's what? like, "What?" And what? <laughs> I. I I cannot help but laugh, and it's so fucked up. I'm like my cousin's not listening, um, but I'm sure he's not. Um, it, my aunt was dead in the driveway, and they were like, "What, what? the fuck?" So what had happened is that she, uh, and this had happened before. This is like a, there was a precedent of this where like she had really low blood pressure, and sometimes mm-hmm. like when she had a big meal and then she went out into the cold, she would like get really lightheaded and sometimes have to like sit down. And there was like a Thanksgiving a few years before where like, again, we'd had a big meal. Maybe she had a glass of wine and then she went out into the garage, which was really cold to get something. And she passed out and fell down on the floor. So this had happened again. She left my parents' house. They shut the door. They turned off the lights. They went to bed. She passed out on her way down the few porch steps, fell and hit her head and died. And nobody knew it until the next morning when the next door neighbor was like, uh, you got a dead body. Um, and so obviously this is like 
incredibly traumatic for my mom. You know, it was just yeah. like, not only is my sister dead, who no, we expected her to live to be 100 because she's like the picture of health, but also like th- this happened, you know, this was happening. Like she was, you know, dying all night in front of our house while we were just like wow. watching the news and falling asleep and, you know, digesting our corned beef and cabbage. That's terrifying. It's so terrifying. When my sister... <laughs> told me I could not stop laughing um there's like no and it's so fucked up and she my sister like she was like I have to get off the phone with you like what is wrong with you and like I was like I don't know I just it's so yeah like what a weird like you could not make up this this you know turn of events you know uh, also, the thing is that my aunt used to sort of joke, but we were like, is she joking? Like, to my mom, she'd be like, well, once you die, like, I'll, you know, I'll marry your husband or like, I'll keep your husband oh. company, you know? So I was just like, wow. joke's on you, bitch. You died first. Oh my God. Um, anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. And we couldn't, so I couldn't, you know, my mother was, my mother was devastated and I'm trying to talk to her about this. And I'm, but, but I have like a million, I'm like, what did it look like? Did you guys take any pictures? Like, you know, and you know, it's horrible. It's horrible. I will say, and again, like, I don't want anyone from my family to listen to this, but like, they were kind of frenemies. Like they, you know, like they, they had a fine relationship, but like, there was also some shit talk, you know? So it was kind of like, you know, and I wasn't super close with my aunt. I mean, she was fine. I could always get along with her or whatever, but like, there was a little bit of like, you know, whatever rivalry. Yeah. Well, I'll say, okay, I'll say this. I'll say, this is what I always think about when laughter is a reaction to something sad. Mm -hmm. It's an, it's a very natural reaction. A lot of people have that reaction and it's just like a way in which your brain processes very strong emotions. Mm -hmm. So I never judge people for when their initial reaction is to laugh. I've seen a lot of people react that way to like really shocking events. And it might, you know, like you don't have to feel the need to like explain it and be like, oh, she was kind of a bitch. Like it is, it's like, I think that that's like the, I mean, like that's the point of this podcast, like really sad things, really traumatic things are funny, inherently funny because Mm -hmm. it's like, it's I think it's like you go through this even if you go through something that's actually sad and you're feeling very sad for a while I think most people have a period when you laugh about it because it's yeah. like at one point you're just like dude life is so fucking ridiculous like yeah and and it's scary it's scary because it's like oh that could happen I could just yeah. fall down after yeah. dinner and die that's kind of funny you know like yeah it's what a- am I even doing why am I even worried about the gas bill you right. know like right it's so absurd it's just like it's this- absurd it is absurd yeah and it wasn't covid and it wasn't you know it was just like yeah. random head injury I mean we they did find out the coroner did tell my mother and this made her feel slightly better she was like the coroner was like she didn't lay there dying for 12 hours wishing that mm. somebody would find her and like even if you had called the ambulance and taken her to the hospital, she would have died. Like her, the extent mm. of her head injury was such that like it was done. It was lights I out see. for her, you know. But I yeah. think the horror for my mom was like, could oh, she's I? Like, yeah, lying out. Yeah, there. like if you know, yeah. was she just like I'm? You know, why have thou forsaken me or whatever? Like that wasn't the case. She lost consciousness. She never <laughs> regained it. You know, which is right. good. Um, That's great. That's the best way to go. Yeah, just fall asleep. The long sleep. Yeah. You know, I I, I just wish that I w- was lucky enough that my death is funny, mm-hmm. honestly. <laughs> like, I want people to be like, that was funny. Yeah. That's my last <laughs> gift to everybody. I really hope my death is funny. Right. Yeah. Same. The dream same. death. It's like the submersible people. That's f- <laughs> right. They <laughs> like literally uh, imploded in this felt no of pain. sound. Yeah. We're just like, yeah. one minute they were like, we're so rich. Can you believe we're doing this? And then it was just like done lights out yeah and it's funny like it's we should all be so lucky that our deaths are funny yes we should all be so lucky yeah uh yeah so that was you know that was like haunted my mother for the last three years of her life or two years of her life um whereas i was i'm like can i get the coroner's report like i you know i am just morbidly fascinated with this thing um Mm. Uh, yeah. And then the last, I can, I can tell you one more, what I think is a funny story of about course. my mom. Yes, please. While she was like in her last couple of months, I got on the phone with her. She, I mean, it was, 
like on a on a backdrop of like horror. Like she was in like a terrible nursing home because that was the mm. only one that had any room. Like COVID made things so much more difficult for an already right. difficult situation where it's like there's not a lot of beds. The system of like placing people from hospital to nursing home and and getting it paid for by Medicare is so like fucked up um, mm -hmm. and stressful and difficult. So she ended up in like a bad nursing home, like a Google mm. one star review nursing home, you know, mm. and we were kind of like, yeah. okay, let's see how this goes. And it was like awful. <laughs> um, so I was like, you know, called her and she was just like, she's like, I hate it here. Like they're terrible. Like there was, <laughs> they had shipped these nurses in or these, they weren't nurses. They shipped these like employees in from other states um, who yeah. were just sort of like but warm bodies that were there to like, you know, move stuff around or whatever. And they all, right. the, all these people from out of state were living in like a dormitory next to the nursing home. And there were like a couple of nights where like the fire department came because they were smoking so much weed that they like set oh off the God. smoke. <laughs> you know, it's just like, this is welcome to, these are your caregivers. These are the people that are going to be like ushering you into a sweet death um, who like cannot, you know, can't not blow this weed smoke into the smoke alarm or whatever. So this is the backdrop. So she's miserable and she has been a nurse, you know, for her whole career. So she knows like mm. what the caretaking looks like on the other side. She, she probably talked a lot of shit about a lot of patients when she was working. She she's like, it. this is my karma. Yeah. So she's yeah. just like very, very sad and very, you know, broken down. She's like, oh, I'm going to die soon. She's like, I don't want a funeral. I don't want a memorial service. Like, I don't want an obituary. She's like, just cremate me and take my ashes and just scatter them at Nikki Doodles. Nikki <laughs> Doodles is a is a ice cream <laughs> shop <laughs> that we used to love to go to, like close to their house. I was like, you want us to take your urn of ashes and just spread it around on like a yard full of people that are eating soft serve, like so they can get some pat on their fucking you know, double dip. Like, what are you talking? Oh like, that was her fondest wish was to have her ashes scattered at Nikki Doodles. Like, was she laughing while saying this? No, she was like, I oh mean, oh my god, she might have thought it was funny, but she sounded like she was, you know, gonna die. And I was like, okay, like I'll, I'll look into that. <laughs> like, that um, is so funny. It just made me laugh. It was like, okay, well, we're gonna have a funeral for you. Like, I'm sorry, but like, you don't get to, you know, say that we're not gonna have a funeral. And we pro and Nikki Doodles, you know, as it turned out, it was like December when she died, and Nikki Doodles was closed for the season, so we did not get to spread her ashes at Nikki Doodles. Oh, you didn't? No. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you know, she never put that in writing, so like, mm -hmm. you know, that was not really a thing. But um, yeah, uh, it just was like. I, she so might have chaotic. been joking, you know, but yeah. um, anyway, I, I, I put I, that is going in my book because I'm just like, this is ridiculous. I just like see you like with a Ziploc bag of ashes, <laughs> yeah. just like walking around Nikki right. doodles, just like yeah. spring. And people are like, what are you doing? Yeah, like, like nothing. It's my mom's favorite place. She, she loved the, the black raspberry oh, cone. Wow. I love that. That's like. You know what? Why not get your ashes? Because everyone's like, oh, I'm going to sprinkle my ashes in the sea or like mm -hmm. at the top of this mountain. Why? I hate yeah. those places. I yeah. hate nature. Sprinkle <laughs> my ashes from my right. favorite ice cream place. Right, right. Also, it's so oh messy. God. Like, I I don't know. Like, you get a lot. Like, the human body makes like kind of a lot of ashes. Like, I don't, I don't know. Do yeah. you ever watch The Real Housewives of New York? But like one of the... One of the OG housewives had her dog's ash. She wanted to sprinkle her dog's ashes in the East River. And she like – Oh, I saw they that. They take yeah, the yeah. – you know, and it just like blows. It's like in her mouth. Like it's all over and her she dress. She missed the river. Yeah, yeah. It's just like – it's messy and gross. Like I don't know. My mom's ashes are actually buried in a in – a, there's like a headstone. And like even though it's just her ashes, they're like buried in the ground. You know, it's like that's mm. a that's a neat – a neater way to do it, I think. It's nice. Yeah. <laughs> I just remembered randomly that um one remember that weird TLC show it was like by weird obsession there's mm. a woman that would eat her dead husband's ashes 
Like she would like her ritual was to cry every night and she had it in a Ziploc bag too. She would dip her finger, she would wet her finger and then dip it in there and oh just my God. suck it. And she was doing it for so long and she was like, I don't know why. I just, it's really comforting. She did it for so long that she was running out of ashes. Oh like my she was God. down to like her last half cup or something. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> People, oh you know, death like, is weird and funny. Wow. Then she, maybe she could cut it with something so she wouldn't know the difference. What there does you that go. taste like? That's got to taste. Just sprinkle a little bit in your banana bread. I don't know. Right, right. Oh <sighs> I'm sure it tastes like burnt stuff. This is the thing about mom <laughs> stories, I think. Here's the thing. I think that the theme of this podcast is that these every, you know, it's kind of like we touched on it like in the beginning, like the good guy is actually bad and the bad guy is actually good and everything is like connected. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the... um places where you find this this sort of narrative of like this story is the saddest story and the funniest story is from mom stuff Mm -hmm. because i think your connection to your mom is like birth and death you know like that's that's the universe is in that relationship and it makes sense that all these really really devastating things that happen to our moms are also some of the funniest things you know yeah, for sure. Yeah, so I'm really glad that you shared these stories. That's that's wild that she wants to. She wanted her ashes sprinkled with ice cream. I'm, I might steal that. <laughs> I might write. This is my plan now, Lori. After okay. hearing your story, die a funny death. Mm-hmm. That's priority. I need my death to be funny. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I got I don't know. I really hope my death is funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, get my ashes sprinkled somewhere very random. Yeah. Yeah. Like the CVS on right. 14th Street or something like somewhere like I'm just going to write it in my will. So yeah. people have to do like my like friends have to do it. Yeah. That's going to be like, funny. Leave me on the Z train, you know, just like the like some like, really random part of New York. Just put me there. No, it should be. Yeah, it should be really central so that whenever your friends like pass by it, they'll mm-hmm. be like, oh, and they'll remember you. Yeah. 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 Like in front of Katz's Deli. Right. You know, like just so every time someone walks by, they'll be like, oh, I remember. Yeah. I'm going to be hanging out there. Right. And there's no <sighs> nature. So you're like, you're not, you're not getting absorbed in anything. You know, you just become no, like part yeah, of the sidewalk. You're just getting kicked around yeah. for an eternity. Yeah. You're not going anywhere if you're in front of Katz's Deli. <laughs> you're part of the garbage swirl that's like always swirling <laughs> in front of them. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you for joining the podcast. I thought this was so interesting. I'm sure that I don't think we've had a in-depth discussion about I know people have talked about their moms, but I don't think anyone's really talked about their moms dying and the complicated relationship that is, you know, adult children's relationship to their moms. And I'm really glad that you uh, brought it up and discussed it. Um, and then you said your new book, the memoir, is coming out early 2025. And what's the title? One more time, just so people can look it up. Sure, it's called Care and Feeding. Care and Feeding, and that'll be out in 2025. But if they yes. want to read um, one of the books that you've already published, Bourdain: The Definitive Biography and World Travel and a Reverent Guide, which was partially co-written by Bourdain, and also, you know, if you're going to read something about him. You should read about him from somebody that actually knew him. So that's yes. all I'm going to say. Um, and where yeah. can our, our listeners find you on social media? Uh, so I'm very active on Instagram, for better or worse. And mm-hmm. my handle is just my name, Lori Woolever, L-A-U-R-I-E-W-O-O-L-E-V-E-R. Uh, I'm also on Twitter for the time being. I don't know. Just kind of watching that dumpster fire. Yeah. Uh, and I'm on Blue Sky for whatever that's worth. Also, same, just Lori Williver, my first and last name. Okay, great. And also, I mean, I don't know how long Thre- Threads had a hot, hot second, and I think it's gone. I mean, I'm I'm on Threads. If anyone's, I'm not really posting anymore. But uh, oh, if you want to follow the podcast, you can follow on Instagram at Harry Butthole Podcast. Um, you can follow me at YM Mayor on TikTok. It's Young Me Mayor. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.